Hey, 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 and welcome back to another show. And I have got one of the frontline heroes with me here today, Dr. Giulio Ancini. I need to mess up then. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you for the hero. I don't consider ourselves heroes, but I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for the very nice introduction, man. How are you doing? So, yeah, um, I'm good as well. Cheers. You know, it's been a long time since we caught up, but just give um, just give everyone a kind of a quick rundown on who you are, um, what you do, and why such. Yeah, a so I'm. So I'm a doctor. I work as a neurosurgeon in one of the trusts in London, and uh, yeah, I. I was in the middle of my PhD, essentially, until this COVID pandemic exploded. So the college I'm doing the PhD for closed, um, like pretty much every college in London. That's my understanding. Um, or at least it's partially shut down. And I was about, about to start my study, enrolling my patients for the study, but I had to freeze everything and essentially go back to the front line a bit um, to help my colleagues who are obviously struggling with this COVID pandemic that has... Uh, caught everyone by surprise a little bit so yeah here i am so i'm, I'm essentially right now i'm working um i'm providing a rotor service in one of the major trusts in london and i'm trying to support and provide a service in a bit of a challenging condition as you can imagine but yeah that's what i'm doing right now excellent so just looking at kind of this the way this whole pandemic has snowballed over the last say month um mm -hmm. When it all started coming to light, maybe about four to six weeks, well, about, about six or eight weeks ago, did anyone kind of um, expect it to kind of get to this level where we're at now? Like from, from kind of a doctor's perspective, when you were looking at it then, because I remember oh, it was just for um, it was the start of March, wasn't it? Um, mm -hmm. And it was kind of floating around, it was like, there's this. Um, and then within about three weeks, obviously we're on lockdown. It just kind of really, really um, jumped the gun. So yeah, did you anticipate it to kind of get to this stage? So quite honestly, no, personally I didn't. Um, I don't think many people did. So, I mean, the two parallels that, that we have nowadays about this pandemic is with SARS that uh, broke out at the beginning of the 2000s, if you remember, yeah. still in China, and the MERS, who's Middle Eastern uh, uh, SARS, essentially. Um, now, both these pandemics, well, epidemics more than pandemic, um, they, they started, but they were contained for a variety of reasons. First of all, because they started in a period where probably, especially the SARS at the beginning of 2000, we were not so deeply interconnected within each other. So China was not so connected with the rest of the world as, as it is today. It was still pretty international, but not at this level. And B, also, uh, uh, my understanding, I mean, bear in mind that obviously I'm not a virologist or an immunologist, so I'm, I might not say things that are completely accurate, but my understanding is that uh, the contagious level, which is measured in epidemiology by a parameter called R0, and we can talk about this later on regarding the current pandemic, was much lower than this one. So the, this, these viruses were not so contagious as the current one. So the current one is fairly contagious and it spreads very quickly. And also it, does, it tends not to give symptoms before, on average, one week that you caught it. So you're asymptomatic for a little while. So yes, no, I don't think anyone was, was seeing that coming, to be honest with you, and not in 2020 also. So it was a bit of a shock. 
Some people did, to be fair, obviously professional experts, but not a, a great majority of them. So yeah, it was, it was a big shock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And how has this, obviously, as um, a neurosurgeon, how has this impacted your role? Um, are you still obviously sticking to the same sort of like neurosurgery or have you had to get pulled into um, dealing with COVID patients? So how has that affected your role? So um, some of us, um, I mean, me included in a way, um, we have a part of our training that consists in rotating into HDU, so intensive care. Okay, so some of us have been redeployed to assist COVID patients in their role because of their background. Uh, the very senior one, uh, like I'm not so senior, so I'm not a consultant, but I'm a senior registrar, senior fellow. Anyway, so I'm, I'm as close as I can possibly be to a consultant. Um, um, we, at the moment, we are still in the neurosurgical rota. Now, how is that impacted? It's impacted in a, in a variety of ways. So first of all, the main problem is that, as you can imagine, I mean, it's, it's not true for every neurosurgical disease that we know of, but you know, for many neurosurgical diseases, we have a problem that the risk of having a neurosurgical operation is relatively high to start with. It's not very high, like, don't get me wrong, but it's higher than the average procedure you can go through, okay? So it's still, complications still happen in a minority of patients, but they do happen. And obviously, and, uh, in proportion to other surgical specialty, the risk is, that is a bit higher to start with, okay? If you put COVID on top of that, and imagine that obviously our population, half of our population of patients is elderly patients, like pretty much every medical specialty, the risk goes up a lot, a lot. So we are, we are struggling a lot to actually balance perfectly what should we do in this court of patients? Because obviously you don't want to, the first rule of uh, any medical treatment is first do no harm. So don't, don't cause harm to your patient. So if you are uh, putting your, your patient through a procedure that is gonna be more dangerous because of the COVID pandemic, you probably should consider twice before doing that procedure. And that is the main challenge that we're, fa main challenge that we're facing. Um, the other problem that we have is that Essentially, right now, we are considering, obviously, because also the staff is very concerned about their own health, and some members of the staff, the staff are elderly as well, we have to go through a series of procedures before actually starting the surgery now. So more than usual, more than average, even just for transferring the patient from the ward to the, the, to the, to the surgical theater. And that essentially takes way longer. Like, you need to prepare yourself um, before you enter theater, uh, you position the patient, attach the patient, then you need to go out of theater, uh, de-scrub again, wash your hands, blah, 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 and then re-scrub when to start the actual procedure. And that is true for pretty much every passage concerning the patient. So everything takes much, much longer. It's way more physically demanding. You have to wear masks. There are not the surgical masks, the like FF3s uh, or the other, I don't remember the acronyms, but, you know, M3 something. So mm -hmm. that way more uncomfortable, they're very tight, you need to fit tests for those, you need to cover your hair, cover your, put goggles on, full covers on your arms and legs. You know, we are also facing, now, you know, this is a very warm April for London standards, so, you know, in a, in a warm environment, it's even more, so he's, he's really challenging, I have to say, he's really, he's really, he's brutal at the end of the day, essentially, you know, the, the, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, physical fatigue that we experience at the end of our shifts um so yeah so that's the answer essentially so then when when you're talking about that on um, would be like an average um surgery time like 
you're talking about that's extended your surgery times. So what would you say so the surgery COVID was to say post, well, including all of the preparation um, and like de-scrubbing and after as well? So, I mean, the, the surgical time itself is pretty much the same. So, skin, so from skin cut to skin closure is pretty much the same. It is everything else that is way more demanding and takes more. Obviously, if it's an emergency, we try to speed, up, speed things up as much as we can. But still, it takes a bit longer because, again, you need to assume that the patient, if you haven't got a test available, and in many cases we don't, uh, you need to assume that the patient is COVID positive until proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. so, and so that preparation is the challenging bit. And it can take up to, just to bring the patient to the theater, it may take up to one hour, one hour and a half. Obviously, it depends. In very emergency life-threatening situations, we, we try to speed things up as much as we can. But yeah, it, it is, it is the preparation and the post-operative uh, treatment, like in terms of deep preparation, that takes longer. Okay, fair. So with regards to um, everything that has been going around, I think obviously there's different risk factors, isn't there, like age groups, and like you said, with the elderly are much more um, higher risk. Is there, obviously, I'm guessing than there is, but what is kind of the risk level to the younger, um, the younger age groups? Because I, I do realise, like I drove past Battersea Park the other day, and there's just like big groups of young, like lads, so between sort of like 18 and like early 20s, basically, they're all just playing football and having beers and passing cigarettes and stuff around, as if it's just like a normal day. Um, so that I guess they've kind of got that very much that young macho um, masculine approach. They're just like, oh, it can't get me. Mm. But is there actually much of a risk to those people? So, um, I mean, the, essentially for the data, consider the data that we have so far, it is true that for younger people, the risk of very serious complication is minimal. It's not zero. Um, uh, let me clarify this. So. The mortality for this virus is higher than the normal flu, like way higher. We're talking about 3% mortality on average. 3% is the gross da data, okay? So yeah. on a population with no differences of age, uh, comorbidities, blah, 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 the mortality is 3%. So it's higher than the flu where the mortality is probably 0.5% or 0.05%. I can't remember the exact number, but way lower, like, you know, tenfold lower, lower or something like that. With that said, it's not zero for young people either. In fact, if you look at the media, and obviously that makes much more noise, every now and then you do have young people who actually died from this virus. Now, that is kind of normal in a way. Don't get me wrong, it's a tragedy, obviously. But it's normal in the sense that even with the normal flu, you always have outliers with every pathology. But there is always that exception to the, to the statistical distribution where you have someone young who died for the flu. Um, it, is, it is extremely rare, but it's, it is possible. The main concern about young people, and I've been one of them because I mean, I haven't been tested, but almost for sure I had it because I, I, I obviously know about the symptoms that you experience and the, the kind of the development of the disease. So a few weeks ago, I'm pretty sure I had coronavirus myself and I've been self-quarantined obviously with my wife. So the main problem is that as we said before, is with this disease being extremely contagious, A, so it's not only a question of age, but also comorbidities. And to be, so associated problems that people have can impact on their outcome. And also associated habits. Like for example, you were mentioning smoking. Now smoking, 
in this context is quite dangerous. Like I would, if I was young and I was smoking, I would consider smoking at least, uh, at least until the pandemic is over. Because obviously smoke doesn't help your immune system at the level of your upper airways, lower airways. It, it, like, it's like putting a f um, ball thrower, flame thrower into your lungs uh, and destroying all your white cells, antibodies, and um, clearance system that you have. So it's not a really good idea to smoke right now. And also, uh, but, but the main point about these young people hanging around is that they carry this stuff, even if they're completely asymptomatic on themselves. So they go home, they, they find their mom, they find their dad, and God knows, maybe mom and dad are still young, like in the 40s or 50s, but they can then go and bring food to their grandparents, and their grandparents are probably 80. Um, and in that case, obviously, it's extremely dangerous for them because the mortality in that group, so if you stratify patients for age and comorbidities, above the age of, I think, 70, again, I don't want to be, I don't pretend to be absolutely accurate on this, so I might, it might be something higher, something lower, but it raises, it raises uh, um, up until 15%, so it's very high. 15% is a lot. So that's, that's the reason why we absolutely need to follow the advice to stay home and practice social, social distances. It's extremely painful, I get it. Because especially now, this, this is the time of the year where we really want to go around and start you know, socializing. I, I, could, I get it, I'm not, you know. Um, and we used to, to go to hang out and socialize ourselves all the time when, you know. But right now is really the wrong, the wrong moment to do that because of, essentially because of these reasons. Yeah, I guess it's the um, it's not necessarily the fact that you might get ill or the damage that it might cause to you, but yeah, like like you say, it's who you can spread it to and who they might spread it to. It's kind of that domino effect. You never know who's going to be that last domino. It could, for, for all you know, as you said, okay. like your nan and granddad, and the last thing you want to do is infect them. Well, no, so a there's a point. there's a very on on this point there is a very interesting youtube channel um it's a bit again it's a it's, it's a kind of a political youtube channel but i think it's very balanced in a way and um and it's very informative and it's is actually uh, talking about coronavirus pandemic right now it's called tdlr it's a british one i think the guy is based in london or somewhere in england um and there's a very interesting video about this r0 parameter that i was telling you about so essentially right now at this very moment, the coronavirus has got a um, R0, which is about 2.5 or something like that. What does it mean? It means that one person infects 2.5 people, persons, okay, on average. Obviously, it's not half of a person infected, but you see what I mean. Like, it's a statistical calculation. And uh, that's quite high. It means that in, in the course of a month time, one single infected person has infected 400, which is... A lot, as you can imagine. So, and you need you need to make sure you, you need to obviously consider that you suffer from one person in effect four hundred, and then each one of those people over a course of one month is themselves infecting four hundred people. So you can see how how easily the curve goes exponentially up. So the 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 the, the effort that we're doing by staying home and social distancing is flattening the curve, as you might have from the media. So we want to reduce this R0 to at least one or beneath one. And when we reach that, it means that one person infects another person or even less than that. When we reach that, it's very complicated to, you know, the calculation to uh, extrapolate these values are, are obviously very complicated myself 
I don't know them because I'm not an epidemiologist, but you know, when you reach that level, the, the pandemic is kind of under control and you can think about a very gradual reopening of some commercial activities. But before that, um, yeah, it is extremely dangerous, mostly for our more vulnerable, vulnerable people and patients. Yeah, that's um, just going on to that note then. How is it spread? Like, I know there's a lot of talk about how different things are spread and, and viruses, but could you actually give us a real breakdown? So if I'm walking down the street, if I'm popping to my local shop, you know, because I, I looked in um, at Waitrose the other day and I see everyone's queuing up outside like two metres apart. Then when you get in there, it's just kind of like a free fall. People are like bumping into each other and... So how exactly is it spread? Is it just like bumping or nudging and touching like with someone? Is that enough to spread it or does it have to be like via the breath? So um, it spreads very easily. So essentially what happens is that, so a virus doesn't really, on average, doesn't really survive in the environment a lot. And that's the good thing about it. And it's, and it's easily killed, this specific virus is easily killed by alcohol-based gel. Okay, which is good. With that said, um, so what happens is that anytime we talk, even right now while we're talking, we do emit an invisible amount of droplets called aerosol, uh, flug, uh, flugi uh, droplets, uh, I think in continental Europe, they're called like that. Anyway, the droplets, you cannot even see them. They're so small, they're sub-microscopic, you cannot even see them. But inside those droplets, the virus survives for a really long time and they go everywhere. So... There are a number of studies about this. These have been done for ages about different viruses, but essentially they, you can calculate, you can kind of get an estimate of how far the droplets can go. Um, and by which means, what I mean is that when you're talking, they go as far as, let's say, one meter or two meters. When you sneeze or coughing, they can reach five meters long length, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the virus and these droplets, they deposit on a surface that can be plastic, can be iron, can be copper, and depending on the composition of the surface, it can survive up to three, four days or a few hours. It really depends. So on copper, for example, the survival of the coronavirus is very low. It dies out almost immediately, probably because of a cross-reaction of copper with the, with the virus structure. On other surfaces like plastic, for example, it survives a lot. Um, and there's a study that came out really recently, I still have to read it, for example, from Netherlands, saying that actually, if you are infected by coronavirus and you're cycling, you should observe five meters to six meters distancing because the wind and, um, and the velocity where you're cycling, essentially you spread the virus a lot much more than you, when you're walking or you're running. Um, so we are still essentially trying to get um, a definite conclusion on many, on many points about how the virus spreads. But what we know so far is that it does spread quite easily if you don't accept social distancing. And it does resist on a number of surfaces for a long time, which means that anytime you go for groceries, you should try to use gloves, disinfect the surfaces that you're touching, the food that you're eating, and all that kind of stuff, because it can survive a few hours. Um, my mom, who's, uh, you know, uh, she's, she's very sweet, and obviously she, she's getting a bit paranoid about this, understandably, because she's in the age of people at risk, because she's actually keeping the groceries outside for like 24 hours before starting bringing them inside and then she disinfects everything. I think I understand that it looks really like an exaggeration, but right now it's not because you don't know what happened to those 
um, groceries or to the to the stuff that you bought uh, before you touch them. And also the very uh, an extremely important point: anytime you go for grocery, try not to touch stuff that you're not gonna buy. I understand that this is also extremely annoying because sometimes you want to see the composition and ingredients and blah 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 blah. But right now. I would recommend everyone to just buy what they are sure about, what they sure that they want, and don't, you know, bring, you know, take something up and then put it back up. So that's something that at the moment we should avoid. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, you, you gave um, a few good points there on, on ways that people can obviously minimize their own risk with um, obviously alcohol-based um, gels and things like that. So these surgical masks, do you recommend people wear them or they just kind of look again? So uh, personally, so I, now technically speaking, they don't stop the, the, the droplets from spreading as uh, uh, FFP3 uh, or M5, uh, again, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about the acronyms, you know, the big kind of gas-like mask yeah. do, okay? So they're not so good as those at all. However, my personal opinion is better than nothing. Like they still do reduce a tiny bit the amount of droplets that you emit. Obviously, none of these masks, except for the, for the very professional ones, but these masks, they don't stop the virus. So they don't have a filter that is so good to actually stop the virus, okay? What they do, they filter the droplets at least a tiny bit. And that's kind of enough to at least reduce the amount of virus that is spread around or that you are at risk of catching, obviously, because you could be a victim potentially, so. I would say if people have them, I would suggest wear them uh, and it's better than nothing. Obviously, they need to bear in mind that other measures such as disinfecting, social distancing, that are, that are extremely important as well. And none of these work perfectly 100% by on its own. So they need to be observable together to minimize the risk, essentially. Yeah. So are there any um, sort of like supplements, are there any other aspects, um, say like nutritional or just the lifestyle aspects that people can um, implement that will help them reduce the risk? So obviously see everyone's like, um, like super dosing things like vitamin C tablets and like, obviously I've, I've looked into the research, but what would you recommend? Is there anything like that? Well, you are the real master, yeah, I would say. You, 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 mono, you know, as you can remember, you know more about nutrition than, you, than I do, to be honest. Yeah. My, my, my knowledge of nutrition, you know, dates back to my university days 15 years ago now, so it's a bit longer. But anyway, so, uh, I mean, one big recommendation I already told you about, so minimize the stuff that you uh, essentially can put you at risk of developing a respiratory syndrome. So smoking, quit smoking right now as much as you can. I do understand that for smokers, it's very difficult to quit smoking because there is an addiction component to it related to nicotine. So it's not easy, I get it, okay? So, but um, reducing the amount of stopping is highly recommended. In terms of nutrition, as we talked many times, I don't, I'm not a massive uh, fan of supplements, mostly because for many of these elements, there is actually a, a, a sort of a roof that your body hits where actually all the sides where, and all the stores, storages, um, areas where those supplements and those elements are needed, as they reach a plateau level and they don't, they don't go higher than that. So you, you cannot, so for vitamin B12, for example, you have your reserves, your storages, they don't go higher than that. So your body cannot store more than that. Everything mm -hmm. else that you put inside is going to be excreted. So that's why I'm not a big fan. But obviously, um, everything that can 
help to boost your immune system. So fruit, especially, uh, you know, oranges, vitamin C, which is fluid. So vitamin C specifically, there are some studies and even a trial, I think that has been started specifically for coronavirus. It looks really promising. So essentially it looks really helpful in preventing the acute respiratory distress symptom, which is called ARDS, that essentially is the one that requires then intubation and ventilation in ICU. And when you develop that, essentially your mortality goes very high. It becomes, you know, you, you become a very high risk of mortality. So vitamin C seems very promising in, pro, in preventing that from happening. So everything containing vitamin C, fruit, oranges, that kind of stuff, very helpful. Vegetables, very helpful um, of any sort, to be honest. Um, and obviously, you know, carbohydrates, I would say there isn't any particular role of carbohydrates in this particular pandemic, but you can eat carbohydrates as long as you don't exaggerate. It's more for your general fitness than, than for uh, this, speci this specific risk. Um, and limit, obviously, complex sugars such as sweets, alcohol, that kind of stuff. Um, I would say minimize that, but don't, you know, don't erase them. You also need oh, yeah. a bit of a distraction considering, <laughs> considering what we are facing. And I do understand that it's a very stressful time for everyone. So. Yeah. Um, and one thing I will say on that as well is, obviously, healthy fats and proteins are going to be kind of integral to this as well because obviously the role of um protein obviously getting broken down to amino acids and essentially is what your cells your body and everything's created is is made out of so yep. by ensuring that you're getting an optimal level of um of protein is going to ensure that your body is also creating enough of these sort of like t-cells and to help fight this infection but i guess it always just comes down to that kind of the same old structure, the same old um, argument. It's just basically eat a natural eat food diet. Yeah. Eat healthy. Eat healthy. It always comes back to that, doesn't it? I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Can't agree more. Just, um, just on that note, obviously it's been um, a respiratory um, virus. So obviously for people that are asthmatic, I can imagine it being, they're going to be high risk in, in this, aren't they? Um, would there be anything that they could do? Obviously, I understand that it's, it's probably going to come down to what you just said. Um, would there be any, anything else in the asthmatics? Is there any sort of other medication that might help? Or um, would it just be the same? So I, I uh, let me put a disclaimer here. I haven't got a lot of experience with asthmatic patients because obviously, you know, I'm not a respiratory physician, so I don't... You know, I don't want to give people the false impression. You're a doctor, so you know you should know everything. No, actually, we are nowadays we are very specialized in what we do. So I don't want to step into a, a territory that I'm not overly confident with. However, with that say, obviously, I'm asthmatic people, especially people with patients with severe asthma, they do have their own medication to keep that under control. Um, my recommendation from an you know from a doctor who's not an expert as uh, specialized doctors in this would be keep your asthma under control, take your medication, as for your respiratory physician advice, eat healthy and try to reduce exposure more than anything else. That's, that's essentially what it is. Um, um, and, and obviously, yes. Ex um, but obviously the other thing is that I would say 
physical gentle well not gentle but you know you see what i mean like not too intense but physical exercise might actually help as well because obviously with physical exercise you know even better than me you recruit the uh, respiratory uh, capacity of your lungs so you recruit more uh, alveoli what is called the little cells that actually absorb air from outside so you can recruit more than that you can expand your lungs better you can put you can mm, enforce the muscles that are responsible for your breathing so you can essentially maximize your respiratory capacity which i would say is also a very positive effect on your on you of a patient potentially getting infected by coronavirus so yeah, yeah. okay awesome so looking at kind of how this virus is playing out what are your thoughts on the kind of time frame like how long are we all going to be stuck inside for? And yeah. I'm checking until we'll go back to living the lives that we're living in, say, February, before this whole thing kicked off. So, trust me, I mean, this is a billion dollar question. I'm, I, sure. Trust me, I'm struggling. I'm struggling to sleep at night thinking about this because as a doctor, my primary concern is for, for people's lives. But I do understand. Uh, so, right now, again, as I said before, I didn't want to get political, but I do, I would. I will make a very neutral political statement. Regardless of what you think, regardless of what your political ideas are, the last place I would like to be right now is Downing Street or the White House or Palazzo Chigi in Italy. So the, the places of powers where people are, have to take decisions right now. It's an extremely difficult time to make a decision about this. The reason for that is because I do get, as a doctor, even if, as I, as I said, my primary concern is people's lives, I do get people are going to lose their job, the economy is going to go down, and this is extremely worrying. This is not a secondary issue. People are going to suffer from this big time. Um, so we will have, at some point as a society, um, start thinking about a gradual reopening sooner rather than later. And now, unfortunately, this reopening is going to be very gradual. It means that some specific kind of businesses are going to, unfortunately, be at the end of the queue because they're the nature of the business is that they are likely to spread the disease more, unfortunately. And typical example is, um, is barber shops or disco pubs, uh, that kind of stuff. Sorry? I said gyms. Yeah, well, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, gyms is, uh, is also in the list, I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry, man. I, I, I mean, it's extremely oh, no, painful. It's, it's extremely painful because I do understand it is your job. I get it. So um, I suspect there's going to be a gradual reopening in the months to come, hopefully, hopefully if we are very lucky, around May, June. But coming back to full normal life, realistically, I don't think it's gonna be before the end of the summer. And it could be even one year before it does happen. Because, and I'll tell you, and I can explain you why that is. I mean, you can also make another choice, which is to reopen everything now. But obviously that choice comes with a huge price in terms of lives. So, um, uh, there is no win-win situation here, okay? So there isn't a solution that is going to make everyone happy and is going to sort out the problem tomorrow. I wish there was a... Well, there is, which is vaccine, but the vaccine is not going to be ready before at least, at least December, January next year. And we're talking about a very early date. So if it's going to be available at that point, it's going to be really, really quick, really fast. So... Um, Coming back to, to, uh, to the point is that, I mean, the, the, main, the main issue is that there is a study from Lancet that explains this very, very well. So essentially, you, at this very moment, we have 
grossly three options. Obviously, there are many varieties of those, but there are three options. So A, we keep everything locked down until the pandemic is fully over. Now, the advantage of that is we definitely control the pandemic. The disadvantage is that A, people are going to go crazy because, I mean, mental well-being of people is also an important factor. So you cannot keep people at home for six months. It's crazy. It's really difficult to tolerate. B, um, obviously, the economy is going to take the biggest hit. So that's one option. And those are the pros and cons. The other option is to do a, a gradual return to normality. Now, there is a risk with that, which is, so if you stop the lockdown and you restart the, every economic activity immediately, the very high risk is that in a few weeks or months, the curves, the curve of, of contagious or infected patients is going to go up again immediately. So then you put, need to put another lockdown to control, to flatten the curve again. And so you're back to square one. And if you follow that pattern, essentially it's going to take you three years to take the pandemic under control. The third solution, and that's where it's interesting because this problem becomes political, is the solution that they applied in South Korea. So what they did in South Korea, from a medical perspective, is a very effective solution. But from a political and social perspective, I can see why people might not like this, which is essentially you develop an app where you track people who are infected and all their relatives. So you put these people in lockdown and you control their movements and you keep everyone else free. Now, this solution from an economical and medical point of view is perfect because essentially you can reopen, but at the same time you control the pandemic. The downside of it is that you're essentially creating a system to give your health data to the government. And that's what people are very scared about and understandably. Now, in my opinion, the government kind of already has your data if you're an NHS patient. So it's not that the government cannot access your data. Obviously, there are a number of regulations and barriers in place. So it's not, it doesn't work in the Western countries right now. It doesn't work that someone in the government can access your data anytime they want. They don't, they can't. So there are a number of regulations that people data are safe in the NHS because there are, you really, is your public office, if you are a public officer or a politician, so you really need to have a good reason to access someone else's data. So you suspect a terrorist or something like that, okay. Um, but I do understand why, I do understand why people can be very reluctant to do this. Um, so that's the third option and it makes a lot of sense for many, for many reasons, but it's not politically very easy to put into practice. So. I'm sorry, obviously, if I, you know, I digressed a bit, but you know, it's, it's all, it all comes back to your question. A very positive response would be, we're gonna be back to normal around probably July, August. A very, you know, optimistic response is gonna be that. Realistically, September, October, we're gonna be kind of back to normal. A pessimistic revision, uh, um, uh, pessimistic estimate, probably we're talking about the beginning of 2021, I'm yeah. afraid. So again, this is a pessimistic uh, scenario, but it's not impossible, I'm afraid. It's true, but um, looking at what you said at the start there about, obviously they could just let everyone go about, go, about, um, go back to normal now, but then that's what they did in Hong Kong, wasn't it? And so I've got yeah. a friend that in Hong Kong was um, on the phone to two days ago, and that's what he said, they've gone back into lockdown, so they got rid of it, and then everyone kind of went back to normal. It was going back to the pubs and, and then it just flared right back up. And so they've gone back into lockdown again. So I think, yeah, taking more of a, a careful approach. And like you say, maybe going in like age groups and 
yeah, unfortunately, that doesn't mean that the people that are higher risk are going to be um, left out. I, I, I was thinking about, so I thought about, uh, about this a lot, uh, and I was thinking about uh, a, a son, kind of a in-between scenario, but this is a really personal opinion. I, I haven't read anyone talking about this, and I haven't, I haven't read, you know, government uh, um, plans to actually implement any of this. So it's completely personal opinion. But one potential, one potential solution, again, as, as a non-expert, I'm telling you as a private citizen, it could be to reopen very gradually most of businesses with a number of rules implemented. So like, for example, restaurants, pubs, that kind of stuff, you only accept a certain, a certain number of people. When you're not eating or drinking, you put your mask on, you practice social distancing even inside the pub. So you go there with another person for a drink, you are one table or two tables away from another person and you stay there so at least so this is a kind of an in-between solution where you at least cannot can potentially minimize the risk of contagious again here really uh, you know in order to consider a solution like this what um uh, what you should listen to is essentially epidemiologists and virologists i'm i'm really the wrong person to give another so i, yeah. I don't want anyone to consider this as an advice or a potential solution but i was wondering whether there could be room to consider or debate a possible solution like this. Because at some point, you need to consider also the economy. I mean, again, people are going to lose their job, and I'm really, I'm, I'm petrified about that scenario, to be honest, as well. Like, it's, it's a conversation we need to have. And also, and also, for example, reopen businesses where actually you don't need social distancing. Like, for example, I, I was talking to an entrepreneur the other day. He's an Italian guy who has a number of of places here in Italy and was telling me that some companies actually, even production companies like, you know, uh, companies actually producing stuff like uh, industries, um, they actually have a working pattern where people are actually not in contact with each other. So, you know, you can diverse, you can, you can consider the diverse scenario depending on the company and the business at, at the government, uh, you know, at the government level and try to reopen those businesses who actually don't need people gathering together to work and to produce. So that's also another, another option to consider because you know, businesses are very diverse right now, are they? So it's not that everyone is the same. I think it's gonna be interesting seeing what comes off the back of this, because obviously with the majority of the workforce now, um, they haven't been furloughed, they're all working from home. So it'd be quite yeah. interesting to see, and it's almost changing the whole dynamic that people don't need to be in that office. I mean, I understand if you're quite new to a role or something like that, so you kind of need that supervision. But for other people who are kind of like in sales, things like that, they can just kind of crack on from home. There's no real need for them to be in, in the office. So it'd be quite interesting to see how the whole sort of paradigm of the normal working day will change. Like, yeah. I reckon a lot more people will be working from home. There'll be a lot more sort of like, flexi work hours things like that it'll be um it'll be interesting yeah. there's yeah i guess you've got to look at the positives to such a negative situation absolutely absolutely it's going to be the biggest seat is obviously the i think one of the, the sectors who's going to suffer the most is the touristic sector like i don't think we are going to realistically we're going to be able to travel long distances for a, for quite a long time now that's another sector i'm very worried about and i haven't got a solution for that because when you have to catch a flight there is yeah is a closed environment for a few hours. So social distancing works up to a certain extent. It doesn't really work. Or, you know, if you, if you need to fly to New York for seven hours, how, you know, as good as the cabin 
uh, pressure and ventilation system could be, how good can it be if you are together with 300 people and you're infected with coronavirus? You see what I mean? Is is really a hit. Yeah. Anyway. Um, just want to um, dial that round. So obviously you said that you had suffered, you think um, that you had um, caught COVID. What are your um, thoughts on what are the best practices when you have that? Again, looking at things like any sort of diet, like what did you do from say becoming ill to becoming healthy? Is there anything that you could recommend people do that could help increase, well, just make that time a little bit more efficient to being healthy again? Sure. Um, I mean, we, we, we partially mentioned it before. So essentially what happened is that in most, in most people, what happened is that, uh, so, First of all, the majority of people are asymptomatic and that's another problem. So they don't develop any symptom at all. They carry the virus, they don't know it. Okay, so, um, and what's the case is actually obviously more dangerous because you carry it around, you spread it to, uh, to other people and you don't know it. Yeah. Second thing is, uh, the, uh, essentially the, the uh, so the way that COVID, when you do become symptomatic, the way it develops is like that. So the very first day, the very first few days, what I developed was dry cough, which is a typical symptom of coronavirus. So you haven't got a productive cough, you, you got a dry cough. And then I got fever for like five days with um, intermittent bowel symptoms as well, which is also fairly common. And then for another week, I was feeling extremely fatigued and weak, but no fever. And I've lost completely my sense of smell and taste, which is also something absolutely peculiar of coronavirus. And that's why um, I'm almost sure. So also that the other reason was that the first patients with coronavirus appeared in my hospital one week before I started to develop symptoms. So that's why I'm also fairly sure. We all develop symptoms pretty much at the same time. And one person of the staff has been tested because she was immunodepressed. So, um, and she was positive. So we are pretty sure that those are, so there are a variety of factors that made me think, yes, I'm almost for sure headed. So you lose your sense of smell and taste, which is absolutely peculiar, but you don't lose because your nose is congested. Like when you have a normal cold, you tend to lose a bit of smell, a sense of smell, and that's fine. But in this case, your nose is completely free and your mouth is free. You don't have productive cough. You don't have the symptoms anymore. You just don't smell and don't taste anything for a few weeks. It's coming back now. And I stopped being symptomatic three weeks ago. So, um, uh, my advice would be, so first of all, extremely important, self-isolate. So for one week, I actually self-isolated for my wife as well. So I was staying in my bedroom. She was putting food on my front door. I was grabbing food from opening my door, um, uh, grabbing food and then closing the door. So then at some point, she, um, obviously she's also self-isolated as well. So, um, so that's the main so, sorry, not at some point, but right after I became symptomatic, she stayed home as well. She didn't go to the hospital because of that, because that was the guideline. Um, the, the, other, the other recommendation is the one for like the general flu. So self-isolation, drink plenty of fluid, try to eat healthy. Um, a number of people find, find difficult to eat during the, um, when they are very strongly symptomatic. I get it, but you know, try always to eat at least something because you need to keep your body going, obviously. Um, and, and, that's really, and that's really it. And if you are struggling to breathe or be, you know, developing major symptoms, just phone 
111. I think 111 is the service for, um, if I'm yeah. not wrong, sorry, the number. Yeah. Um, and speak with the NHS person or consider attending e and &E if you're really struggling to breathe, obviously. There is no point in being heroic if that's the case. Yeah. Yeah, yeah nice. Awesome. Well, I think people have got some fantastic take-homes there on how to really be safe um, during this little COVID crisis. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave um, the listeners with? Um, just a few little take-home tidbits. No, not really. I think, I think I said everything. I, I just wanted to ask you how you're doing and how, how things are going. All consider, you know, considering this mess that is going around, how things are. Yeah, mate. Do you know what? It's, it sounds really, really bad. This couldn't have happened really at a better time for myself because oh, I got back. Okay. I just moved into a new place. Um, well, me, me, and my, me and my girlfriend um, brought, brought a flat. We got keys on the, the 19th and went into kind of lockdown on the 22nd or 23rd. Um, mm -hmm. So it just, it's actually meant that I've not need to get like a removals van, so I could just nip back and forth in my car because there's been no traffic. Um, and it's just given me a lot of time just to focus on this. And obviously, a major, like a lot of my business is online now as well. Um, so, mm -hmm. so I have my um, my app, my my own app that I kind of run all my um, my personal trainer business through, um, and then I started doing just a few more sort of like live workouts with a lot of my clients and stuff like that, which I've actually really enjoyed, and I think I'll keep them going because it's nice to get that actual <laughs> see my clients because a lot of mine are just on like phone talk or like Zoom. I do like weekly Zoom call my check-ins. Um, so it's actually nice to see and work out with them when I do this kind of like group workout. So I'll probably, I'll, I'll still keep that in. But yeah, cool. it's good. It's just a funny title. And we've got a garden in my new place as well, which is... Ah, that's it, amazing. That helps a lot, isn't yeah. it? So I was in a top yeah. floor flat before and now we've got a garden. So give me, yeah. give me two weeks, man. I'll be like Alan Titchmarsh. I'll be a gardening specialist. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. That's great. Fantastic, man. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's working a bit better for you because, I mean, timing for me and a number of other people couldn't have been worse. So it's actually, yeah. but I mean, I don't, I, I, it is honestly a bit refreshing to hear that it's actually working out from some, for someone because, you know, you, we need a bit of positivity nowadays. So I'm very glad that you're, you do well. And, you know, that is, you're taking the opportunity that this crappy situation is offering to actually developing something else. So that's really cool. Mm. Well, I think it's it's one of those things in life. Like no matter what situation I'm in, I always try and look at the silver lining because I yeah. think you focus on the cloud as opposed to the silver lining. Life just you just make it a little more negative and a lot more difficult than it needs to be. Like in life, I think give your energy to the positives rather than the negatives. Otherwise, like. I think this would be a very dark time if I focused on on the negatives, and because obviously, as you say, like I'm, I'm, um, what do you call it? I'm, I'm self-employed, so I've taken a huge hit with regards to a lot of some of my business, and yeah, it is, it is, a, it is a hard and scary time. But at the same time, like I said, there, I, I just try and focus on the positives, and that way, it just doesn't stress me out as much. I just try and be more mindful. So appreciate the good vibe. Okay. <laughs> Great. But um, would you say a lot of your, you said that about the um, kind of, it's quite a bad time for yourself. Is that because of your PhD? 
Yeah, correct. So I mean, it's. I mean, I I, I am. I'm kind of ashamed to complain about stuff because I mean we're all in the same situation. It's the same for everyone. In fact, I'll tell you this funny tragic story. Which so the, I got a very close friend and a colleague in Rome who essentially proposed to his girlfriend um, a few months ago, and they arranged um, uh, the wedding for the for July. So they invited me and my my missus um, down in Rome. Uh, for a beautiful wedding ceremony and, and dinner, um, you know, um, in a place that was essentially at the shore. So, you know, the seaside, beautiful restaurant, fantastic, blah, blah, blah. So they had to cancel the whole thing because the guy is not even sure he's going to open for this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had to withdraw the, the invitations and stuff like that. So, I mean, people, there's a friend of mine who's is, married and his wife is pregnant and they literally just bought actually i got two friends in the same situation they literally just bought a place and they need to move right now but everything the whole country is in lockdown one of these friends is in the united states um with wife pregnant and the other one is in italy and that is interesting because completely different continents latitudes blah 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 they exactly in the same situation <laughs> so it's 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 tragic you know it's it's people are facing all sort of difficulties right now you don't uh, I think the take-home message is that we, I mean, what we, we should take as as people in general, as a society in this situation is that we take for granted so many things that are not granted at all. And when we are going to b- go back to normal, we really should think back about these days and think how lucky we are that we are, because we will be over it. I mean, it will be over. We will be back to normal. It's not that it's not going to happen. But we, when we are, we need to make sure that we think about these days and think how lucky we are to actually be such social, living in such a social, global, interconnected times where we have a luxury to speak and go out and hang out and, and, and uh, live so, uh, you know, with so many interesting people. Like, I think our social life is gonna benefit from this experience overall, even if it was a very tragic and very bad experience. Yeah, well, that was a fantastic positive bombshell to finish on so on that julia thank you so much for coming on mate and yeah um is there anywhere you'd like to send say the listeners if they want to find out more about you like instagram is there anything you quite active no on? no no really yes i'm on i'm on social media on facebook and, and instagram uh, if you guys want to follow me absolutely i'm on twitter as well um yeah no i'm i mean um i'm i'm very happy to I'm, i was really happy to speak with you mate and obviously what i would recommend is for people to follow you more than anything else if you started a podcast and uh, and obviously you know uh, take uh, kieran as a pt is a fantastic pd i had an amazing time with him and i would highly recommend it to everyone that's that's what i would say no, for the focus on you, me <laughs> yeah. Rose, Julia, have um, a cracking day mate and take care thanks Thanks, mate. Thank you for having me.